HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with a really fascinating person. We've just been chatting before the show a bit and, you know, talk about intersections of food and art. I mean, it is, it is your whole repertoire, you know, intentionally or not, Henry Hargraves, now a photographer, but that much more. Thank you for being on the show. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So the accent, first of all, gives away that you're not from Brooklyn. I <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm from New Zealand originally. Yeah, in New Zealand, uh, it was fascinating to find out of how much of a monoculture it is, how, how you know, almost solitary an island uh, that nation is. Tell me a little bit about what growing up was like there. Yeah, look, it's it's an amazing place to grow up. You have a lot of opportunities. It's safe. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's beautiful as well. But yeah, that is the, the challenge. And everyone also always is like, oh, it's part of Australia. It's actually, <laughs> it's actually four hours flight from Australia. Yeah. So I'm always like, you, you know, it's, it's Russia to England. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, in, terms of, in terms of that. But, you know, the closest foreign-speaking country is you know, Indonesia at 11 hours flight away. And, uh, you know, and it's very, very like at school. Of our 600 students, I think it was, uh, you know, 590 young white boys. Yeah. A handful of Asians. And I think there was uh, someone from Tanzania. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so Samoan, Polynesian, are these parts of New Zealand culture? Or you know what? That's there's New Zealand's is two islands, north and the South Island, and um, the Polynesian population is uh, they're predominantly all in the north because when when the Maoris were Polynesians first came, that's the the warmer part. Yeah, in the south, the winters are a little uh, a little aggressive um, when you don't have pink bats and insulation and things like yeah. that. <laughs> so Maori, not Samoan. Um, and I kind of know it as as rugby players, 
big old fellas. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, it's actually quite, as we grow up, because, of course, rugby's religion there, um, they actually do... You play by weight division, not age. Yeah. Because uh, those boys develop, you know, they're like your father at 12. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're spry. You're a tall, skinny man. Did you play rugby growing up? Was I, it part of the institution? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it was. And I had a, um, a career-ending uh, hamstring uh, injury when I was about 14 and then started playing golf. Yeah. <laughs> But you talk about those glory days all the time. Oh, look, sure. I, I, we do, we do. I yeah. mean, and, and I used to play uh, with the guy who lived across the road from me. We used to go out on the street and kick the rugby ball over the power lines to each other in the, <laughs> in the evenings before the sun went down. Yes. And, and, you know, and I still religiously go and watch the All Blacks every time they play. So, you know, New Zealand seems so idyllic when you explain that. And from what everyone's seen in Peter Jackson, you know, Hobbit films. Um, but New Zealand is not Australia. <laughs> What kind of exports and how, how does it define itself as a nation outside of, you know, that island? Uh, I mean, just sort of jumping back to the Australia thing before we even get into that, I remember a friend once said to me, you know, I've now figured out the difference between Australians and New Zealanders. She's like, it's like you take away the, uh, the sort of the sophistication and you've got an Australian. <laughs> So I just lost all my Australian listeners after that. That's fine. <laughs> no, we, lo- we love you guys too. I mean, we, we all know it's tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, you guys, uh, um, there was an interesting aspect to life where at a specific age there was an overseas experience. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about when that happened and what that really was. Yeah, so, so I mean, you know, jumping back to when, when you grow up there, you really don't have much of an exposure to, to other cultures. Everything's just this big exotic world that uh, that's a long, long way away. And uh, so when you typically finish um, tertiary education, university, polytech, what have you, you do this thing called the OE or the Overseas Experience. And often because we're Commonwealth uh all New Zealanders get a two-year work visa to the UK. So typically it involves, you know, just one-way ticket to London, working in, you know, for a couple of years, visa runs out, you're broke on the other side again, come back, and uh, now time to start your life. But for me, I got my one-way ticket to London via Bangkok, and I went into Southeast Asia and spent three months travelling to kind of blow all my Pacific pesos, as they were calling <laughs> the New Zealand dollar back in those days. Um, and, uh, and I actually got asked to model because um, they didn't in Thailand they didn't have western models going there as a destination because it wasn't well enough paid like Japan or Hong Kong or somewhere like that so they would go around and pick up the, get the tourists so I was on Koh San Road you know shopping for a cheap bus ticket to Cambodia and got asked if I wanted to uh, you know grace grace the lenses yeah well I mean tell me a little bit because that sounds a little sketchy at first oh yeah but, but, but I mean what was that interaction like and why did you say yes why why was intriguing to you well also in new zealand um the male you know uh the ideal male is a rugby player he's not a not a high fashion model you know square jaw big biceps and what have you and we also don't really get the exposure to or we didn't in the 90s to high fashion you know there weren't prada stores or gucci or anything like that it was um you know very much the new zealand and australian brands with the all blacks and the cricket players as the uh you know the guys wearing it so i wasn't really aware there was this whole sort of you know heroin chic look going on in europe and so when I got approached, first of all, I was like, you know, really me? You know? <laughs> and uh, then, then my sort of second thought was, uh, you know, this all sounds very dodgy. It's got, you know, sort of uh, rehypnol bathtubs and, uh, <laughs> you know, sore bottoms written all over it. So I, I treaded very carefully and uh, said I would only do my little, like, test shoot for this 
everything you know around the area I was familiar with and told a few people and it all you know ended up being legit and uh, and I ended up you know getting a few jobs on the back of this and then went over to England and started working in a, in a bar there which bars had always been my traveling occupation wherever I went I knew I'd be able to keep my head above the water financially by working in restaurants and I'd done it at university so I got to London and worked in a horrible place called uh, The Railway in Putney, which is owned by J.D. Weatherspoon, which is the, the kind of Dunkin' Donuts of, um, <laughs> of restaurants in the UK. It's where you can go and get a full pub meal for, for £3.50. Um, and so while I was there, I got my pictures from Thailand and actually decided I'd bite my pride and go to some agencies and see if anyone would, uh, would, would represent me. Yeah, I mean, so how long did it take for you to actually get a hit in london uh so i got i went around the first agencies i went into the first couple uh didn't take me on then one did and and you've also got to remember for a young kid uh who's was pretty modest and didn't really have that much um confidence it it was a pretty hard thing to go and try and find a modeling agency which is so much against you know that good new zealand bloke this is not you know what what we do but i i I thought i'd give it a shot and uh yeah i eventually signed with someone and a couple of weeks later an agent from milan came over scouting to bring people for fashion week in italy and uh then he said look i'll fly you over to italy take care of all your expenses and come over for a month and see what happens you know you only have to pay for your eating you know everything else is taken care of and basically i went out there and got dealt four aces i got all the all the big shows and you know was the face of prada that season that's pretty good yeah then you had the money to spend on good meals you know you know what it's uh the male modeling world is not the female modeling world It's uh, it's it's diluted down massively, and uh, I mean, look, it was it was great money for a twenty-one-year-old, but um, it was going out pretty much as fast as it was coming in, and I wasn't being too lavish. Yeah, Stephen Maisel, uh, Richard Avedon. I mean, you got to shoot with legends in the industry. Yeah, yeah, I was I was, I was really 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 lucky um, that that I kind of came in when at just at the right time, and then. You know, it was it was amazing to work with all those guys, and I. But I also went in with a very concrete set of goals. You know, to me, it was about I wanted to go and see a bunch of places, and by the end of it, I had nine agencies around the world. So that was part of it. I actually never took an apartment while I was modelling, so I took a couple of sublets. But between gigs, I used to have Europe, Lonely Planet on a shoestring, and it would be like, okay, I've got two weeks before I have to be in Paris. Let's go and see what these, you know, the Basque regions like. Let's go and see what you know the south of France and things. So I had this great, you know, uh, travel experience with, uh, with, with all of that and, and got to see everything. And also one of the goals was I, there were a couple of photographers I really wanted to work with. But once I got to a point, I wasn't really interested in the, the kind of the ride down for less, less prestigious, less money, kind of doing everything yeah. over again. Because that's the other thing about the fashion world is every six months it, you do exactly the same thing you did six months before. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the food world sometimes. You know, it's the seasonality yeah. of you sit there and you wait for spring to happen. It's like, I want ramps. You know, uh, I want garlic scapes. And then you wait a year again. It's like, yes, ramps. Yes, garlic scapes. And when does that cycle end? Well, I, I guess I, I, I like, the, I like the, uh, the metaphor you're using there. And I think that the models are the food. You actually don't get to change yeah. anything. <laughs> Whereas the designers are the chefs who yeah. actually get to you know, have a bit more fun with I, it. I really I enjoy that analogy. And, but what, who is the photographer? Um, 
the uh, yeah, well, I'm thinking about the runway shows here and those things. Um, well, I mean, the photographer was the guy I wanted to be. Yeah, so that's ultimately what what happened happened for me. I was like, this was fun being, you know, being the guy having the pictures taken with. But God, I want to be the guy who makes the decisions here. Yeah, I want to I want to be that kind of rock star behind the lens, so everyone listens to what he sort of says and you know talks about him in, in sort of you know hushed tones. So I mean, did you want to be a fashion photographer, the same ilk of who was photographing you? It well, so no, I did I did film at university. University, and the only thing I realized when I finished that was that I didn't want to be a filmmaker. But I loved taking pictures, and my aunt had been the head of the art department at a girl at the sister school to where I went. So I used to go on the weekends and hit the dark room and develop my little pictures of the other, you know, of whatever I was taking pictures of. And uh, and I loved it. But in New Zealand, a photographer is not really a career. You know, the photographer is the guy who comes and takes pictures of school children. Um, you know, then not not in a, not in a creepy way. Yeah. That's, you know, uh, the, the the school portraits. Um, so I never really thought that there was that much of a world uh, that it could happen in. So when I saw this, that was like that's what I would like to do. But and fashion was my first exposure. So I started trying to do that. But the first commercial jobs I started to get were for still life gigs and food. And I hadn't really expected that to happen. And when I started shooting that, I was like, you know what? I actually enjoy this a lot more. I don't really actually have that much of a vested interest in fashion. Um, and it was like, for me, still life was I could have a picture in my head of what I wanted something to look like. And the only variables are moving things around in light. It's not like styling and models and you know there's so much many moving parts yeah the control of an inanimate object exactly exactly so that's what i that's what i really really liked um about it and and also working with myzel he had like such a vocabulary when it came to hair and makeup you know he could sit there and talk about all the different finishes and textures and this and i was like I, you know, all, all I'm like, give us smoky eyes and make her look great. You yeah. know, you know, that was about, about the limit of that. So I realized I was, I was never going to be able to reach those peaks of these guys. Yeah. Um, you know, it was fascinating you talking about your relationship with food in that sense that you don't necessarily come to a shoot with the intricacies of how people cook or what ingredients are because you like keeping those variables as almost abstract. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I like I think I think it's really important for people to have a their own unique perspective on things, and one of the things for fo- in food, uh, I am really interested in the process, but I actually don't don't go out of my way to try and learn, you know, too much about that. I still like having that whole mystery and sort of still being the you know the child that this wonderment that someone comes out with this fantastic thing and and you know I am genuinely blown away. I'm not I'm not like oh looks like looks like he uh, you know spent a little bit too much on you know that side with this hair and um, you know has under seasoned it here or what have you. You know to me it's I, I I still go you know with these big wide eyes and uh, and you know and also I don't follow too much of photography in general i also I, I do follow blogs very religiously but i i try to look into other avenues so like the design blogs and architecture blogs and you know and restaurant blogs as opposed to seeing what everyone else is doing in the photo world because i find as a photographer you can get in that rut of oh i wish i did that yeah as, a, as opposed to like here's something that i can interpret my own way well, I mean, I look at your work and say, oh, I wish I did that. And, you know, even on your website, the playfulness of uh, your name spelled in pancakes. 
I mean, you, you, you take such a wonderful childlike eye and, and turn it into, you know, that, that blur between high fashion and, and food photography. Um, you know, you, you initially started photographing just plates at a restaurant. But when did that, you know, conceptual transition happen? I think a lot of it came down to uh, I did a stint as staff photographer in New York magazine. And I thought that was going to be my big break, you know, those big juicy credits that they give you. And when the first issue came out, I remember looking at my Google Analytics and being like, I'm going to, you know, this is going to really push the needle. And I was like, oh, I'm still getting a consistent 25 visits a day. Yeah. You know, nothing's <laughs> really changed. And uh, I did a, a series where we had a snowstorm here in Williamsburg. And I dropped Star Wars characters in, into these shots of everything, you know, stopped during the snow and called it the hipster strikes back. And anyway, <laughs> long story short, it went viral. And so I was like, you know what, I've been thinking about this the wrong way. I've been waiting for cool things to fall in my lap when I really should trust my own instincts and if I, and do things I want to see. Because if I want to see it, someone else inevitably wants to see it and it'll find its own audience. So that was that was kind of how it all started. And also I think it's really important that when you go to a photographer's website, you can actually, I want, I want to be able to see their ideas. And, uh, and that's kind of what I try to, try to do. Well, I mean, let's pick apart your website for a sec, because it's not just your ideas. It's, it's, it's these collaborative, you know, projects, which is wonderful that you, you work with other people to mm -hmm. kind of expound and it shows your hand and shows then, um, let's talk about Caitlin Levin. Sure. And your relationship with her and how you two work together and what kind of work you make well so i mean she for me a lot of stuff also uh, started with this place called shillers i used to work at and caitlin was a regular came in on monday night and would drink her rosé and one day i was like what do you do and she said i'm a prop stylist so we went and did a couple of little shoots together and we just ended up collaborating really well because i feel like a good collaboration is um you know, you complement each other. And there are certain things that I'm not particularly strong with and there are certain things that she's not. And we kind of worked really well together in that way. And then also, I think a good co a collaboration is also a conversation where you keep pushing each other and testing each other. And you don't necessarily have to have exactly the same aesthetic. And I think that's cool, where it becomes like this battle where it goes into a place where neither of you really expected it to go into. And that's that's kind of you know the magic of the collaboration I think. The gingerbread houses, the the candy sculpture of mm -hmm. modern architecture, um, you know, using sugar, kind of like glass candy as as the windows of the Louvre's pyramids. Um, my favorite is the licorice windows of the Guggenheim. Right. I mean, how was that project concepted? So that was uh, Dylan Dylan Lauren from Dylan's Candy Store had uh, had come to come to me and said, look, I love what you do. And I'd love to basically just to do something with you guys. And they just opened up a new store in Miami. And it was Art Basel was coming up. And she said, look, why don't we give, give you the store to do an exhibition? Uh, great location there in Miami. And so as she was sort of saying, you know, take, you know, do what, have carte blanche, essentially. I was trying to think what would work there. And I was like, art, art sort of festival candy store okay let's do a marriage of these two and so i was like let's make gingerbread art galleries and there was also the whole seasonal thing and i actually met her at her brother's gingerbread making competition uh at his at his house so i was like this kind of tied in perfectly together so i said to caitlin let's do this um and then she was like, well, how do you imagine we're going to make these things? And I was like, I have no <laughs> idea. Let's just, I've sold Dylan on the idea, so we're doing yeah. it. 
and now let's figure out how to make it happen. And, you know, neither Caitlin or myself have really any training in fine the fine arts. Neither of us have, you know, done sculpture. I actually never studied photography. I never did any of these things. It's just like we're just playing with food. We're like, there must be a way to execute this. And that's kind of our creative process. It's like, let's throw ourselves in the deep end. And uh, and that's what we did. And it was actually also interesting with these because Dylan said, can we show the gingerbread galleries in the store? And I'm like, you know... <laughs> These, this is like a film set. This is made for one view only. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's the the, uh, the one street town that you go around the back and there's, uh, you know, the buildings are nothing. Yeah, yeah. We have a specific point of view and yeah. an angle and it's all a facade. We're going to take a quick break and come back and talk bacon alphabets, setting food on fire and so much more. You're listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. You are listening to Cheese Gainsburg by Tagstar on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. Welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here again with Henry Hargraves. And, well, we'll talk about 3D boobs in a second. See, now now I got them hooked. Now everyone's wondering, what is 3D boobs? We'll get to that. We'll get to that. But I want to talk a little more about bacon alphabets, uh, caloric photography, setting foods on fire. How did these other projects come? Were these things that someone approached you you approach somebody how, how do these come to life that so I, i'm was really really lucky to um start working with stefan sagmeister this legendary art you know graphic designer art director and i've, I've done many collaborations a couple of campaigns and also in his designer jessica walsh predominantly as well and i was on set one time watching them do all this stuff with typography 
and it was just so cool and so playful and so innovative. And I was like, I'd love to, let's throw my, my hat in the ring here and let's just try something out of food. And uh, so I decided I'd do it out of bacon. It was like, you know, bacon's one of those things that, you know, there's that whole like cult of bacon that's going on at the moment. And, you know, where it tastes so good, but is also kind of like such a gross thing. But, you know, we've kind of convinced ourselves it's beautiful. And, you know, there's so, there's so many rights and wrongs going on with it. So I was like, let's, let's do a bacon alphabet. And I decided to do it in the... Um, the uh, Old England font, and which is the one from the Times, and you know it's, it's quite a, an interesting font. Cause it's, you know, it was actually Hitler's favourite font and preferred <laughs> font to use for all the mail outs. Yeah. But you know, the thing—it's got this like weird, weird history. Anyway, I mean, it was just—I mean, that whole thing was just like let's 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 show people bacon in a different way, and let's show an alphabet in a different way. And to me, so much of my stuff is just like let's take two odds, let's smash them together, and let's see what the result is. And you know what? It often doesn't work, but I'd rather something doesn't work than not try it. Yeah, I mean, at least it's tasty, that bacon. I mean, I'm sure you ate 26 pieces after that. Well, it's also, this comes back to a little cultural thing. This is very much American bacon. Yeah. Like, when New Zealanders come over, they're like, what are these strips that are mainly fat? Like, we still get these cuts, whereas, you know, 80% meat and a little bit of fat and rind on the side. Is that streaky ham? Uh, or that, that's a British thing, I believe. Yeah, I, 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 I've heard that term, but I wouldn't know what it meant. Yeah. But yeah. So then setting food on fire, you know, you did a series where, what was it called? Uh, Burning Calories, um, where you literally just set food on fire. Yeah, there was, there was just, I wanted to play on that whole, that whole pun of burning calories and the only literal way to burn calories. I was like, let's, you know, let's set it on fire. And a lot of my stuff starts where I'm like, with a, something I think will make a cool picture. And then I'm like, okay, now let's start to put the elements in place. And with this one, I actually did it with a friend of mine, Amira Kassim, who's got um, a uh, company called Flower Shop, and they make these amazing cakes. So I said to her, can you style this? And she said, well, I'll only do it if I can make cakes of all the fast food. So, you know, the popcorn, the, the, uh, the Chinese noodles, the burger, everything is actually a cake, which almost looks like such a flawless piece of the real thing. And what was also interesting is the cakes actually have a similar caloric count to the real McCoy too, even yeah. though we think cakes are like these little like sugar bombs. Yeah, it's like you know that uh, you know that that chicken chow mein is uh, you know is not not being too light on your hips either. Yeah, I mean I love how it is these iconic things from Chinese takeout to you know hot dogs, but now I think I even love the level uh, of it being cake. You know these these the fake food that you see out of you know outside of Chinese restaurants, Japanese restaurants, those plastic acrylic things. I mean. Just removing it, that other sense, uh, you know, elevates it in su- such a fascinating way. Jello presidents. That's one where I just think you're just having fun. Yeah, that w- that came about during the election. Of course, being a foreigner, I'm not not allowed to vote. So you kind of, I just sit on the sidelines as this passive sort of viewer. Well, this whole you know election mayhem's happening, and I, I, I just love. I, wanted to do like an ode to uh, to the presidents and so I decided to do everyone in profile which had been that traditional sort of you know portrait of power and I was like let's do this out of one of those you know quintessentially American foods so I was like let's do these out of jello and then I'll color code them to which parties they were with how many terms they did how they died if they, and if they died in office um, you know if they were impeached like all these little things and made this key and did, did a fun thing and to me when when I Uh, sent those out on the internet I also gave each president a fun fact because I I, you know I wanted it to be about learning as well I kind of there was a childlike 
you know thing to this like you know to me it's one of those things if you said learning about american history was the driest time of your time at school it's like let's have some fun let's make it out (laughs) of food and let's give you something that you might remember because it's interesting so you know barack obama collects spider-man and conan the barbarian comic books and you know showed it around to all these people and and actually it was quite funny that um i was interviewed recently by george bush's daughter on the today show and my george bush uh fact was that when the when he uh so when bush moved into the white house the clinton administration had removed all the w's from all the keyboards uh and 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 the whole in the the white house anyway she's like that's untrue that's uh." (laughs) and uh anyway it was it was reported in a lot of a lot of real you know um uh, newsworthy thing. So yeah. who knows? I won't let the truth get in the way of a story. Is yeah. also another thing. Yeah. To me, it was a fun anecdote. So, I mean, was it farcical or was it an actual fact? Uh, I mean, it was reported in, uh, I mean, Google that. You'll see it's it's in, yeah. you know, I forget the newspapers, but big newspapers were reporting on that. And, you know, so, but I mean, big newspapers in, uh, in, in China also uh, write stories from The Onion. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, I mean, because The Band Writers, another mm-hmm. great project that you've done, um, I couldn't tell whether or not, you know, these were real in that sense, too, because some of, you know, explain what a band writer is, first of all. So when a musician plays a show, they have a, a rider, which traditionally was how they want their equi- equipment set up. You know, we want these amps, we want the guitars set here, we want, you know, all the all these things, we want the space here so the musician, the uh, lead singer can, you know, mince around. And it <coughs> got more specific to where it was like, I want this kind of food in the dressing room. And... I read, I found on this website called The Smoking Gun that uh, people had actually scanned in all the riders and sent them in there. And so you could read what all these bands wanted. And initially I was thinking, let's, I was caught by how wasteful a lot of it was. It was just like so much stuff that you, you know, there's no way on earth you can get through it all. So I thought I'd do a series based on, you know, showing how much waste they made. And I was like, well, no, I'm basically just going to be part of this. And, you know, it's going to be an exercise and spending money and uh, and then getting rid of it all. So, but what caught me was these interesting things that they were asking for. You know, Marilyn Manson wanting his Haribo gummy bears. His, you know, the Foo Fighters asking for a, uh, a sausage that's so big it'll make a man feel self-conscious. <laughs> you know, just these crazy, crazy things. And I was like, that's the interesting part, not how much stuff there is. So, again, I did this series with Caitlin Levine. And one thing I, I also forgot to mention on collaborations, the other reason I love to do it is no matter how good I think I can make something, it'll be made better with a collaboration. Because I feel if I do something by myself, it's kind of like having a child. You never want to criticize it. You're always happy with what it does. But if someone else is involved, you can both like, you know, you're not so so attached to it. Yeah. So you can make it better. So we were discussing, we were like, let's do these like the um, Flemish Still Lifes, you know, where the themes are about the mortality and passing of time. And I thought this had a great connection with musicians where as soon as the spotlight's, you know, gone off you, you're not going to be able to make these crazy requests. Yeah. I love Lady Gaga's. It's a cheese plate on ice. Yep. No smelly, no sweaty. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love the way that how some of them reaffirmed what you thought about people, then some of them contradicted it, and then some of them were just plain cool. Like, you know, Sinatra, who basically just asked for a a, a booze buffet with shrimp and cough lozenges. It's yeah. like, you know, it's like, that's my priorities. And what, Prince had an injection too, right? A B12 yeah, he, he injection. Want, yeah, he wanted a doctor to administer the B12, so, you know, get a, get a good hit of vitamins before yeah, yeah. he goes out to him. I mean, there was something also kind of tragic and Michael Jackson-y about that to me. Yeah. Uh, 
and you know and uh, and and the, I mean the other one that was really kind of dark and tragic to me was Britney Spears who you know along with McDonald's cheeseburgers without buns and uh and her a hundred figs and prunes she wanted a portrait of Princess Diana <laughs> You know, which is just like, I, I, I wouldn't even try and decode that. You mean that. you don't eat to a picture of Princess Diana? It's you what know, all Americans do. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe I should. You know, I've got a little collection of paraphernalia around my studio of things that have been left over from shoots. Um, and that portrait is there, and it's actually too creepy for me. I'm yeah. actually kind of like, like, it initially just went face down, and now it's in a box somewhere. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I don't need to see that. Well, it must be a wondrous Pandora's box of things that or, you know, stray around uh, the studio because you were asking me how I first found out about your work. And it was kind of a smattering because you you have such distinct projects that I think I've seen them here, seen them there. But I certainly remember your Rainbow Food collection, mm-hmm. um, you know, as strikingly visual as that is. Uh, I'm assuming you probably have some Rainbow Food left at the house. But what what was, you know, the reasoning behind that? Because... For me, changing you know certain food items into this into this rainbow, decontextualize them mm-hmm. one, and kind of put them in this funny, happy space that you don't really have to think. There's not too much depth. Yeah, where where that series came about was I read I read a little anecdote about a, a mother who had a child who was um, who didn't enjoy eating and was really really struggling to get the, the, the her son I think it was to eat, and so she said she started coloring the food to make it playful and then he wanted to get involved with it and to me that kind of just jumped out of being like isn't that interesting as a kid we want to play with food we want it to be colorful and be fun but as an adult that repulses us and and to me i was like let's in food coloring it's odorless and tasteless but you have these preconceived notions so i was like let's make all this food that actually doesn't taste or smell any different but just visually we're now don't want to see it. You know, it, yeah. be, it becomes not food in our mind, but, you know, the most exciting thing in the world for kids. And I just love how as we grow up, we transition, you know, our ideas change. And that's that was what this whole thing yeah, was to me. It felt it even about. more like, you know, those Play-Doh uh, machines where you can make your own noodles. And, right. you know, w- whereas when looking at the spaghetti versus looking at a hamburger, in my mind now, maybe not as a child, those two things would taste the same because they're made of those same color. So it's just a really odd disconnection to, you know, being overloaded by color, being overloaded by this rainbow sensation. Mm. And it's, it kind of like flatlined all food for me. I don't know if that was its, it's you know, intent, but it was kind of a really interesting reaction mm. that I didn't expect. Well, I mean, I also, I love hearing, you know, your feedback and every, people's reaction. Because I also think that, you know, part of the trick to photography is to not, give everyone all the answers it's like here's my inter- or here's here's me giving you something think about it what you want you know it's like here's a little bit of a mirror up to you know you can make your own um, you know conclusions as to what you think i'm doing and i love hearing that yeah. when, when people run with things the ball much more than you know well, I, was, than I've given I was really hoping you actually said conclusions <laughs> uh, because no meal uh, uh, i mean no seconds mm-hmm. um these kind of portraits of the meals requested by death row inmates well, obviously this, is a conclusion yeah the, and this this and kind of band riders i think are kind of sit nicely to next to each other because Coming to the States, there's like one thing that, you know, from the other Anglo countries of the world, um, find really st- strange and surreal is the death penalty and this, this, the way that this works. And 
Uh, and this series came about when Texas was getting rid of the last meal request. Someone had ordered too much, they considered it too wasteful, so they were like, let's get rid of it, you're going to get what you're given, and that's that. And probably ironically spent, you know, millions in changing of, you know, the legis- you know, legislation, which was much more than, you know, waste- wasting a couple of uh, fried chicken legs. But um, I-, I was like, what do people actually have? And so I went online and found it's all public record, you can read about it, and it was sort of these things that their food kind of just gave you a connection with someone who you have no connection with. I was, I, I was thinking everyone on death row, I thought of them as statistics. It was just a name, they were anonymous. But as soon as I saw what they requested, they actually became a person in my eyes. And also how the media has a way of kind of making killers um, celebrities. I mean, look at the, the Boston bomber who went on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. Mm-hmm. And... This this kind of became interesting with the band riders as well. How these celebrities who we find, you know, that we put them on these pedestals, and fight, but then they've got very common food tastes, and suddenly it's like, wow, they're not deities after all. And so with these prisoners, I mean, that was it was just interesting being able to relate for a moment to someone who I never thought I'd be able to relate to, and make you consider the death penalty and yeah. you know the implications and what have you. So and with that series, I tried to give a spectrum of uh, different different people, different people who are there for different reasons, and give a little bit of commentary, but not preach my own, um, my own you know, political uh, tendencies. So I wanted to sort of throw in someone who's actually been pardoned after he was executed. Um, I wanted to, I didn't realize that only 12 women have been executed versus like three and a half thousand men. You know, there are all these things. I wanted to throw in this one guy's disabled and you never should be on death row you know, if you're mentally disabled. But a lot of these people are there because they weren't able to afford good legal counsel. And uh, and their food often shows that, you know, it's what, you know, this kind of, for lack of a better word, like a white trash food, which we know as comfort food. Yeah. And that became so spooky, comfort food. Yeah, nothing, last nothing was lavish. I mean, lots of fried chicken was, it was mm. a recurring, you know, food theme, white breads, uh, a sodas, you know, pop. Um there were two that really did stand out for me, though. Uh, mm-hmm. One, the single olive, mm-hmm. um, which I'll let you explain more because the reason why that person chose that is, is kind of fascinating to me. Yeah, so that was um, there was Victor Furiger, and he he. What I liked about that was he was one of the few people I think who tried to make a statement, like give some symbolism. And the olive, of course, is a symbol of uh, rebirth and new beginnings, and. I like the way he used his last meal as a kind of, you know, to almost say, I, I feel like he was almost saying, I'm sorry. Yeah, it felt remorseful. Yeah. Whereas the no food one mm. didn't. Who, who who was it that, you know, there was a blank tray? Uh, I think it was Anil Daez. Um, forgive me, I don't have all the names in front. Yeah. It was a few years ago since I did this. But uh, he, yeah, he... he said he didn't want want anything and then something was given to him and then he said actually I don't want anything at all which you know which you know contrary to that I feel like had if, if hypothetically if I was ever in that position eating food would be the last thing on yeah. my mind you know so I, I kind of can relate to that as well yeah I would like to eat a key so that I can escape from these shackles <laughs> everlasting gobstopper yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, aside from these these kind of you know, I know you're saying you're not alluding to uh, um, an answer, 
uh, and you're trying to keep them open-ended, but there's a very specific point of view in, in all the things that you do. And what's, what's kind of an amazing point in your life is that you've actually taken that and converted it into a, a living space, too, because you're a partner in a couple of restaurants. Mm-hmm. Yep. Do you take those same sensibilities of how you shoot, the playfulness, the you know, uh, interpretive ideas and in space into these restaurants? I mean, I when when I was uh, I mean, I just I always loved working in restaurants, and it was one of the hardest decisions to make was to stop. And I had to do that because working at night, your body kind of gets revved up at night, and during the day is kind of like flat. It's like building up slowly, and I couldn't successfully shoot during the day and work in bars and restaurants at night, but I didn't want to miss this excitement and this, you know, interest I had in restaurants. So, uh, you know, I was privileged enough that I got to a position where I was able to, you know, help out a couple of friends who started places. One of them was my friend Dean, who was the maitre d' at Schiller's when I worked there, who started Jack's wife, Frida, in Soho. And the other is my friend John McCormick, who I'd been a big fanboy of his restaurants for a long time. He's got Moto and Design Five Leaves and Maison Premier and stuff. And he started um, St. Maisie, and I was able to get in, in on that as well. So I try not to... I, I want it to be their restaurant very much. But, it, you know, so when I go there, I'm I'm still more of a fly on the wall. But uh, I, ju- I just love to be involved however I can and hear the stories and how everything's going and running. So so that's that's more that. I try not to uh, step on their vision. You yeah. Know? Pavlova, does that exist at St. Macy's? And uh, yeah, un- un- unfortunately not. Um, you've got to go to Five Leaves for that one. Yeah. Or, or, or come to my dinner table. Yeah. Well, those Australians don't really own Anna Pavlova. <laughs> That is not their dessert. Absolutely, that's, no, that's, for... that's, that's yeah. Yeah, we you, you get in a lot of trouble <laughs> yeah. cl- claiming that to a yeah. New Zealander. <laughs> well, I'm I'm bipartisan. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm that impartial jury. I love New Zealand and Australia the same. But, but for those who haven't had it, it is it is an experience. Yeah. Lastly, you you were talking about these food maps, mm-hmm. um, a new project you're doing that you have yet to release, but uh, corn is the U.S. Uh, New Zealand as the Kiwi. Tell me a little bit more about this because I'm excited to see this coming out. It, uh, yeah, it's, so I'm doing this also with Caitlin and, uh, we just decided we would, I mean, I, I love reinventing iconic images, you know, like I take a sub, take subway lines for instance, and let's make those out of spaghetti and M&Ms. Let's, um, you know, take a portrait and let's create it out of ketchup. And with these, it was like, let's take a map and create it out of food and break it down politically and also challenge ourselves with, um, you know, how how many different things can we do with corn? So for the states, we did corn. It's like, okay, we've got to come through 50 different ways of uh, of making this to for each state. With New Zealand, it was, I think we've got 14 different um, states and regions in New Zealand. It was like, let's take a kiwi fruit and dice it each different way. So it becomes this like kind of fun thing, but... Then it becomes so beautiful when you step back and you look at, you look at this, uh, this you know, food making something that you never expected. And I love turning it on its head and taking your expectations of what, you know, you look at food, you think of food, and it's like get in my belly. And it's like no, let's use it to tell a story. Let's use it to make something beautiful. Let's use it to surprise you. And that I guess is kind of the genesis of uh, what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Well, we'll leave everybody with a surprise because I'm not going to tell them more about 3D boobs. That's three DDD boobs. Just three, two Ds. Two three, Ds. Three double D. Three double D boobs. I, I, I always like to say that there's four cornerstones to my work. Childhood nostalgia, 
food, bright colors, and breasts. <laughs> and, and, and everything seems to be a combination of those four. Yeah, I'd love to see what you do with chicken breasts in there. <laughs> you, oh, you've been listening to the Food Scene at Heritage Radio Network. .org. Please, please go to Henry Hargrave's website. Check out all his fabulous work. And we're excited to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Until then, cheers. Thank Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.